Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm going to shift gears here, and uh, we're going to talk uh, about sports. Uh, former San Francisco Chronicle and Santa Rosa Press Democrat sports columnist Lowell Cohn's career as a sports writer spans four decades. And in his new memoir, he revisits some of the most memorable moments from his relationship with legendary 49ers coach Bill Walsh to the rise of the Warriors phenom Steph Curry. And he joins us now to talk about his career and his book, Gloves Off, 40 Years of Unfiltered Sports Writing. Welcome, Lowell. Michael, it's nice to hear your voice. Yeah, nice to hear yours. And I ought to say that uh, anyone with an interest in Bay Area sports, professional sports or sports in general, or sports writing, which I'd like to talk about with Lowell as well, uh, would find this book quite valuable and important to read. Uh, It's a very serious book. He's a serious writer. Um, We bonded a long time ago because we were both... uh, uh, in this world of um, multimedia with PhDs in literature, sort of strange birds. In fact, you were sort of a strange bird in some ways, uh, forgive the metaphor here, but you, you know, you were, didn't come up the usual way to be a sports uh, writer. You were a sports columnist, and they kind of uh, looked at you a little strange early on and for quite a while because you were critical of Bay Area teams, and that was heretical. Yes, um, the, uh, the Bay Area sports scene sports writing has been seen as soft compared to, say, New York or Philadelphia or Chicago. And when the Chronicle hired me in 1979, they they hired me on a six-month tryout, Michael, and they made it very clear that they wanted me to make waves, that they wanted me to have an impact. And so I'm from New York. I had no trouble being critical. It's how you're brought up. And I was critical of of the local teams. And for a a while, players, management, and other sports writers did not know what to make of me. Well, they didn't like you. I know that. And a lot of them didn't like you. In fact, uh, there's a story that's not in your book, but I remember you telling me about uh, going to a game with your mother. And there was a big sign up that said, trade Lowell Cohen. And she said, you've made it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're right. It was in Candlestick Park. And for every home Giants game, they had a big sign, and I don't know who put it, a banner, trade Lowell Cone, and my mom saw it, and she said, lowly, that's what she called me, lowly, I'm so proud of you, you made it. And I thought, okay, I made it. Well, you did indeed make your mark as a sports writer, and a lot of it comes together in this book that you've put out, or that's been published now. Um, but let, I, I mentioned the fact that you have a PhD in literature from Stanford, uh, did a dissertation, in fact, on Joseph Conrad with I.A. Richards, no less, but you needed the action. The academic training just wasn't enough for you. You talk about, in fact, in your book about going into the library with those desert moats and uh, thinking about Henry James seminars. It just didn't quite do it the way sports did and being out there in the press box. You know, one of the things that's so exciting about being a, a sports writer, or in my case, a sports columnist, 
in the old days, you got instant gratification in that you could see your article the next day. Now you can see it the same day. And in addition, dealing with players and dealing with ownership, there was a lot of friction between sports writers, especially me and them. And I actually liked it. It was not something that I thought was a bad part of the job. I liked the verbal give and take, and I liked the, I call it dramatic tension. And you know, it's funny, some of the people I had the most um, difficulty with, I've become friendly, never friends, but friendly. Like for example, Will Clark, that great player of the Giants. We never got along at all when uh, I was covering him. Now when we see each other, we give each other a hug because we remind each other of back when. Yeah, I was really quite uh, found quite moving when you were writing about meeting some of these athletes uh, that there was perhaps nothing in the way of affection or uh, rapport with, uh, although you did establish that with many. Uh, but then once they were retired, it was like uh, you're on a whole different footing with them. A good example of that was Montana, uh, Joe Montana, who, as you said, had one moment with where he was talking about Notre Dame and getting a little maybe uh, whimsical about his past, but that was, otherwise there were just these shy smiles. You couldn't get behind them. But after uh, you were both retired, it was a whole different picture. Right. Again, because I would no longer be a threat to Joe when he sees me now. Plus, we're both older guys. And again, Joe was the greatest. But he's not, in that sense, Joe Montana anymore. He's not playing. But when he sees Lowell or he sees Ira Miller or he sees Glenn Dickey, we remind him that we chronicled his greatness. And it means a lot to him. And he feels a certain affection for us. Talking with Lowell Cohn, and his new book is called Gloves Off, 40 Years of Unfiltered Sports Writing. And there's a whole spectrum in here of human behavior and human emotions that you can imagine from uh, the sports world. One of the most poignant elements of that that I found early on in the book was when you were writing about Bill Walsh dying in 2006, and you and Ira Miller were pretty much aware of what he was going through. And it was actually quite touching because he wanted both of you to have the story, but in concordance with his wishes, you also had to remain silent until he gave you the go ahead to write about the fact that he was dying. And you say something which I found really quite moving. You say sometimes you uh, judge journalists by the stories they don't tell or don't write about. Well, you know, it was, I liked Bill very much. I had written a book about him. Um, it was his life and it was his death and it was not my job to uh, blow his cover or to intercede in his life. So one time, Michael, I mentioned it in the book, he used, Bill could be very insecure and he used to call me a lot to just to, to almost therapeutic, just things were bothering him. So one day he called me and I heard strange noises in the background and I said, Bill, it doesn't sound like you're home or in your office. Where are you? And he said, I'm in Stanford Hospital. And I said, why are you in Stanford Hospital? And he said, it's something about my blood. And that's all I needed to hear. And that immediately made me think of leukemia. And then he let me know a few days later that he had leukemia. And when it finally came to writing the story, which was probably a few months after that, he called Ira Miller, who had been at the Chronicle with me, and he called me and he said, I would like you guys to write the story. And we talked on the phone, the, uh, the three of us, and then Ira and I, he wrote for, for where he was writing, no longer at the Chronicle. And I was at the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. 
and we filed our stories at exactly the same time. So neither one would scoop the other. But I would have to say that Bill was in charge of how that article came out. And it's quite a contrast when you start writing soon after, or at least in the order that you put the uh, pieces in your book about Al Davis, who uh, claimed that he was talking to Bill Walsh on his deathbed about Erasmus and Midwood High Schools, the <laughs> rivalry that you had from your boyhood. Uh, I mean, you capture, even in that kind of sense of contrast, uh, the character of Bill Walsh as opposed to the character of Al Davis. We don't have to go into that any deeper. We're going to talk some more with Lowell Cohen, and we do invite you to join us. In fact, uh, what do you think uh, are the Bay Area's defining sports figures? Who do you think they are? And what's your favorite Bay Area sports moment? And if you have questions for Lowell Cohen, who's still active on Twitter with his son, getting a lot of abuse from people who uh, make ageist comments, but we can go into that perhaps in the coming uh, discussion as well. But give us a call, 866-733-6786. You can join us now at that number, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking to former San Francisco Chronicle and Santa Rosa Democrat sports columnist Lowell Cohn about his new book, Gloves Off, 40 Years of Unfiltered Sports Writing. And that's an appropriate title because uh, Lowell, not only a boy from Brooklyn uh, who learned about fighting earlier from guys named Big Sal and Little Sal, but also uh, someone who has always uh, revered boxing uh, perhaps more than other sports, although he writes in his book that football is the hardest sport to write about. And uh, if you have some memories, especially memories about sports uh, that you'd like to share, it's good to talk about sports uh, for a change. We've been talking so much about the pandemic and so much about politics, uh, but Bay Area sports is not only what we're talking about now, we're talking about sports writing with Lil Cohen, who is a master of that. And if you have something that you'd like to add to this discussion or just join us in conversation, some memories, Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And uh, it's funny, in journalism, they have this word lead, uh, L-E-D-E. It's the first sentence that's supposed to grab the listener's interest, not only in journalism, but uh, written journalism, but also broadcast journalism and uh, here's a lead sentence from one of the early essays in Lowell's book. He says, Barry Bonds was the saddest athlete I ever covered. Now, that certainly grabs one's suspense. <laughs> uh, talk about that. You know, that's uh, an echo of the first line of The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. I'm afraid to say I recognized it, but <laughs> it's, also good, it. Okay. it's also a good lead, so, though. Yeah. <laughs> I steal from the best, Michael. Yeah, we Um, all do. (laughs) Barry Bonds had everything. He was maybe, I'm saying, he might have been the greatest hitter who ever lived. He was, he's intelligent. He's good looking. When he wants to be, he's a, a charming, nice man. He was so difficult. And I'm saying difficult for the media 
and difficult with his teammates in the sense that I don't think he ever became one of them. I don't think he ever really bonded with them. He struck me as such a lonely person. I remember when he had that trial, remember, you know, uh, in San Francisco a few years ago, and I, I was covering it, and he would come in every morning. Michael had lost a lot of weight. I mean, I think he was a steroid guy. I think he was. And now he, had, he wasn't playing. He lost a lot of weight. He looked wonderful. And his mother, Pat, sat in the first row of the courtroom. I was right behind her every day. And he would come in and he'd say, hi, mom, just like that. Like I would say it. Hi, mom. And I thought, what a nice son. How come I never met this guy? I just think he went through, I don't know what he's doing now, but he went through his baseball life on the outside, lonely, when he could have been uh, the most popular athlete in America. Well, you get behind uh, the outer shells of a lot of these athletes. A uh, good example of that is a piece you have about Tim Lincecum, and we can avoid uh, the yeah. bomb word here, but maybe you can tell that story. Yeah, Lincecum uh, was a, is a very sensitive person, and he didn't like to give interviews. First, he was shy, but also I think he thought he would give too much away. So I was at spring training uh, one, his last year, and you had to get there early to the clubhouse to, to get uh, interviews before they went out onto the field. So I saw Linscom by his locker. He was blowing people off, and it, he had his head in his locker. It was clear he didn't want to talk to anybody. So I walked out in the hallway, and where I was was near the eating room. So he came out to get some breakfast. And as he came by me, I said, Tim, may I have an interview or should I just go screw myself? But that's not the word I used. And he looked startled because he's a nice guy. And he said, gee, Lowell, I would never use that. I would never say that to you. Come on over to my locker. And, and he gave me a great interview. I don't know where I got the nerve to say that, but it worked. <laughs> Again, we're talking to Lowell Cohen. His book is Gloves Off, 40 Years of Unfiltered Sports Writing. And Tom writes... Please ask uh, Mr. Cohen about some of the athletes he met. Mike Davis, Cohen called him the nicest guy who dished out some of the hardest hits. Gene Upshaw, Cohen said he had a belly of jello. Jose Canseco, Cohen said he was a jerk. Jack Clark, Cohen once wrote that he reacted like a sedated hippo. This guy's been following you, I guess. Wow. You know, it's funny. In most cases, uh, I was able to make it up uh, with those people. Gene Upshaw, for example. You got to remember, I didn't come from a sports background. I had been in academia. So the first time I ever went into the Raiders locker room, you know, from the field, they all looked like Superman. They had those pads and all of that. Now they had taken their clothes off. I had never been in a locker room before. And I looked at Gene Upshaw. He was a good guy and a really good athlete, but he was an offensive lineman. You know, Michael, you'd call him, he looked like a jalab. He had a belly, he had a neck. I, I, and so I, what I did was I wrote about it and I described it. And Gene Upshaw was so angry at me. The next time he saw me, he said, look at this. And he made a muscle and all of that. And afterward, he thought it was humorous. And he and I became, again, never friends, but friendly. And the same with Canseco. Canseco, um, could be very, very difficult. But on the other hand, he, he was whimsical. He once called Will Clark a three-toed sloth. I have no idea what he meant by that, but it went around baseball and everybody got a giggle out of it. There was another side to Canseco. 
Well, in fact, I actually saw that side. I went to an A's game uh, many years ago and uh, got to talk to Conseco a little bit. And maybe because I wasn't a columnist or a sports journalist, uh, he was quite friendly and uh, and rather nice. Uh, you talk about seeing people that are looking like zlobs without any clothes on. Uh, you also write about the whole phenomenon of the locker room and uh, how, for example, it... it I think you, you hit upon something there that's quite important. I remember all the controversy when women sports writers for the sake of equality were permitted to be in the uh, in the locker room. And as you point out, a lot of them don't necessarily want to be there, but that's their job and they do their job. But maybe you suggest they should do something like they do with uh, professional women's basketball, just to have them come in in their uniforms and come to talk to the, to the press. Yeah, the tradition, let's talk about a baseball clubhouse, just as an example. The tradition is the guys get dressed, they're often naked, uh, they'll put a towel around themselves, you got to wait till they get into their underpants and their pants, and you stand there, and there are women, um, as there should be, there's no question about that, and you feel uncomfortable, you, uh, you look away. Now look, I don't want to see naked guys, I don't want people to see me naked, what I think they should do, and I think it would be so civilized, say there's a 25-minute period, you, you're in a baseball clubhouse after the game, you talk, every player is there, all 25 are there, you have your uh, microphone or your pad, you go around to them, they're dressed, you're dressed, that's their obligation, and then it's done, you're out in 25 minutes, then they can go take a shower. That would strike me as easy and civilized. Now, what happens, especially in baseball, the Giants have a really nice place down there. They'll go and have a meal. And the poor sports writers who may be on deadline are just standing around talking to each other. And it could be for half an hour when you need every minute counts. And then they'll come out and then they'll go through the routine of getting undressed. That could be another 10 minutes. So it's not really civilized and it's not productive. And I wish that they would change it. Now I'm going to add one, one thing, Michael, that's very interesting. All sports writers have lost access during this pandemic. Everything is on Zoom. And I wonder when it's over with, if when I say we, I don't do it anymore. We will be allowed into locker rooms and clubhouses anymore. Teams could say Zoom really worked. You don't need to be in there anymore. And that would be a further loss of intimacy uh, and good stories for sports writers and for readers. Well, in fact, you say locker rooms are not sexy, and uh, I, I think many people would agree. And you write about a player who was a devout Christian who thought it was wrong uh, that women should be there, and that was apparently a problem. Uh, a number of uh, sports figures who felt that it went against their religion or their moral code uh, to be naked in front of women. Uh, you write, actually, when Michael Tilson Thomas, conductor of the San Francisco Symphony, finished the night's work, no reporters rushed to his dressing room, and while he was in his briefs, asked why he screwed up Beethoven's Fifth. I don't know that MTT has ever screwed up Beethoven's Fifth, but we get the spirit of your remark there. Uh, join us with Low Cohen, by, again, toll-free at 866-733-6786 or by email, forum at kqed.org. And here's an email from Mike who asks, in 40 years of writing on sports, what do you think was your best and worst interview? Oh, my goodness. That is such an interesting question. Um, my best interview, let, may I say my best interview subjects, always Bill Walsh, always Dusty Baker, Frank Robinson, who just was so out there, Don Nelson, who was so out there. Uh, my worst interview, and I put it in the book, 
Bill Bradley, he had been a basketball player at, at Princeton when I went to Lafayette College, and I used to watch him play when Princeton would come and beat us. Um, when he was a senator and they had the Democratic Convention out here, I interviewed him and I tried to ask him about sports, but he refused. He was a um, senator now, and he was well beyond that. And every time I tried to sort of go around the, the back and get him to talk about sports, he, he wouldn't do it. And I ended up with no interview. And like a jerk, I wrote it anyway. And I don't. it went into the Chronicle, but actually I think they should have killed that one because it was uh, it was basically Bill Bradley avoiding every single stupid question I was asking. You know, it's particularly interesting to me because uh, I interviewed Bill Bradley and asked him about his basketball career, and he was some more forthcoming about it, as I recall, as it summons to memory uh, at the time. Maybe it's just that you were a sports writer. Again, that puts you in a kind of uh, position in many people's minds under so many different circumstances. I want to ask you also about something that I found very poignant in reading your work and the, the personal stories uh, about your dad, um, actually legally blind and uh, a lot of tears um, that, that, that welled up. Uh, talk about that story, can you? Sure. Um, my dad was a lawyer. Um, he was legally blind, which meant he could walk around the street. If you went to a movie in a movie theater, he could probably see the big images, but he couldn't read. Um, he, he just was legally blind. And uh, he was a trial lawyer. So the night before a case, my brother, my sister, I would read through the whole file to him and he could commit it to memory. So we were, we, my dad was a wonderful guy. We loved him. And he, he was a very loving dad. Um, the Dodgers had moved out of Brooklyn. It was the first time they came back to, and they were playing the Mets in, in Polo Grounds before the Mets got Shea Stadium. And my dad took me to a double header. I think it was Memorial Day. And in the first game, the Mets executed a triple play, which is so rare against the Dodgers and uh, the, the, the Polo Grounds went crazy, all the, the Mets fans. And um, when it was all died down, my father said to me, lowly, lowly, watch us happen, because he couldn't see it. And I said, Dad, um, the Mets just uh, executed a triple play. And he said, oh, um, uh, you know, imagine that. And we held hands. And I, I felt, you know, he had gone there for me and that I had come through for him. And I remember... After my father died in 1988, I was in New York and I went to see the movie Field of Dreams. And it ends with Kevin Costner uh, having a catch with his father, who is a young man, younger probably than Kevin Costner is. It's magical. And I remember I, I just thought about my dad and baseball and I just started to cry in the theater. And when the movie ended, you know, you go out to the lobby, but I couldn't do it. I was so, my face was red. I had all these tears. Mucus was coming out of my nose. So I just got myself together in about 10 minutes and finally was able to leave the theater. You know, uh, there was one point uh, many years ago where I actually envied you because you were talking about your father and you were talking about what a loving man he was, as you just were, uh, and how he would throw his arms around you and say, I love you, son. And I thought to myself, Boy, I wonder what uh, would have happened. My dad was a great guy and uh, loved him and uh, revered him, but he wasn't that kind of father. Never put his arms around, never said, I love you, son. Or, uh, so Occasionally he'd say, your father loves you, but he would never say, I love you. Ah, interesting. Uh, and I remember feeling, boy, I wonder what, what would have been if, uh, if my dad had uh, been like Lowell's dad. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, that um, 
you have these touching moments in the book um, that are quite personal and you were never afraid of bringing those out in your writing which I think is really to your credit now you have a young uh, son Iggy as he was known uh, and there, there's a touching story about how you took your son to meet Steve Young when he was a boy and uh, well, ultimately he was really uh, he said uh, I wish Steve Young was his father right yeah. Um, Steve Young, for people who don't know, is the most gracious, warm, accommodating, ethical person. And ordinarily, I didn't want my son to think, oh, my dad can connect me with famous people. But he was he was bothering me, Steve Young. And I, Steve Young was a good guy. So we went down, I think my son was 10, maybe even younger. And we sat in the lobby, Iggy, we call him Iggy, Grant, sat on my lap. Steve talked to him. He said, Lowell, this is between Iggy and me. Stay out of it. Um, he signed Iggy's cap. He had a 49ers cap. He got Brent Jones to sign it. He got Jerry Rice to sign it. And on the way home to Oakland in the car from Santa Clara, uh, my, my son said, oh, you know, thanks a lot. I said, oh, whatever you, uh, you want, sweetie. And he said, you know, just one thing, Dad, I wish Steve was my father. <laughs> I thought I did all that to hear that. A uh, funny story comes to mind. Uh, I was friends for a number of years with Harris Barton, uh, who you write about as well, who played for the 49ers and championship seasons. And Harris uh, bought a home in Palo Alto and had a number of uh, his teammates and invited uh, uh, me and my wife uh, down for the home homecoming, homebreaking, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and um, Montana and, and Young were there in the kitchen, and my daughter, my younger daughter, who was just a little girl at the time, said, uh, Harris is uh, my friend. And uh, I can't remember, I think it was Montana, but it may have been Young. Uh, I'm pretty sure, though, it was Montana who turned to him and said, Harris has no friends. Now, that kind of epitomized the kind of humor that football players have among each other, or athletes for that matter, professional athletes have among each other, just ribbing each other. And some of that comes across in your book. Uh, here's um, Richard who wants to know, how important is winning to professional athletes or is personal achievement their priority? Boy, that's a really good question. Winning should be, winning should be their only priority. But there's a whole economic aspect to the game. In, in baseball, they have incentives in their contracts about how many hits, how many runs. In, in football, they have incentives. So sometimes it's a murky issue, uh, whether it's more important to meet your incentives because it's an economic game or to win. Um, as a sports writer, I was only cons primarily concerned with how they did, not with their contracts. Another listener wants to know about Bill Rigney. Ask Mr. Cohen about Bill Rigney, former Giants manager, who was a great storyteller, and indeed he was. Oh, Bill Rigney was the best storyteller. He was such a lovely man. When I would go to spring training, I would try to have as many dinners with Bill Rigney as I could. He told me about what Jackie Robinson was like from the point of view of the Giants. They hated him and they hated him because he was so great and such a competitor. And I want to tell you, Michael, when I would go to those dinners in, in Scottsdale, Roger Angel from the New Yorker would be there and he would be quiet and I would be quiet listening to Rigney tell stories. Now that's really something because Roger Angel probably uh, is about as good a writer about baseball as one could find in any archives anywhere. Uh, he was a magnificent writer. As 
are you? And it's really been good to read your book and to uh, have you on the program again. The book is called Gloves Off, 40 Years of Unfiltered Sports Writing by Lowell Cohen. And best to you. I'll continue to follow you. Best to you, Michael. And, and I hope you, you really love your retirement when it comes. <laughs> Thank you for that. And uh, we'll see each other maybe in a post-pandemic vaccinated world. I hope so. For all of our listeners, another hour of Forum Up Ahead with me and Kim. Thank you for being a part of this hour. And uh, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.